So like every one of Jesus's parables, it wasn't actually given from like a pulpit. It wasn't given in the synagogue necessarily. You know, often he would go out and well, a lot of his ministry was just done out as he was walking in the crowds and walking through the regions. So it wasn't given as like some address or even like a sermon to children. But what we do know that it was when we read the scriptures is that it was a, a weapon of words that was used in the middle of a battle. And Luke 15 verses one and two tell us who was there when Jesus told these stories. And so I want to read from Luke chapter 15 so we can kind of just get a grasp on who he's talking to. Verse one and two. And so it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people even eating with them. And so when you look at these two verses, we see that there's two groups of people in this situation. You know, the two groups were friends of Jesus and the enemies of Jesus. And so we'll come back to those two groups in a minute. But first, Jesus tells them a parable of the lost sheep, and then the parable of the lost coin. And then he says much of the same thing in a different way. And he tells them the parable of the lost son which starts in verse 11. Could someone please read verses, uh, chapter 15, verses 11 to 16. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him but no one gave him anything. So the Jewish law was that if a man who died had two sons, his property would be divided into thirds and the younger son would only get one third. And that was the law, but he could also by law give the money to his sons before he died and virtually retire. So we're about to see in the next verses that this is what the youngest son was asking for. Could someone read verses 17 to 24? When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have, we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and now returned to life. He was lost, but now he was found. So the party began. So dad, I want it now. That's what he was saying. And so he had the wrong attitude to want things now rather than later. That's what we're seeing in this illustration that Jesus is giving us. This is really the essence of sin. And do you remember the story of Esau, Esau and Jacob? You know, it's what ruined Esau's chances of ever inheriting his father's blessing. Because one day Esau was hungry and he wanted some soup and he wanted it now. And so he was not prepared to wait. And it seems so trite, but it literally cost him his birthright. Give it to me now. And so the most wonderful thing to me in this story is that the father gave it to him, you know, and he must have known what his son was like. He must have known what his son would do with the money. 
it was perfectly within his right to say no. You know, no, son, when I'm dead, you're going to have it and you can do whatever you want with it, then it'll be your business. And that's what most fathers would say. But this father said, all right, son, here it is. And it really does take a big father to let a son ruin himself. But sometimes somebody has to come to the end of themselves to actually find the truth, to find the Lord. And sometimes as parents, we can stand in the way of that when we don't allow our children to go their own way because they're making some bad choices. We ultimately are meant and intended to lead them in the way they should go. But there comes a point when they're grown that they have to make their own decisions and they are going to reap what they sow. But ultimately, you know, they're in the Lord's hands. And so this father allowed him to just go his own way. The son ends up setting off for a far country, you know, and at that time, um, Antioch was called the Paris of the Roman Empire. So it was basically like, to our comparison, a place for like nightclubs and theaters. You know, it was a Gentile city. So it was away from Jewish communities. It was away from like religious sort of taboos. It was very worldly. And so it was a far country. It was called a far country because although it wouldn't be far today by plane or car, it was far then because they were getting around by foot. And so it was a long way away. But it was a place that young men from Galilee would sometimes go. And if they wanted to rebel against their parents, this is where they'd go, you know, to get out of the strict religious atmosphere. So off he went. And he had plenty of friends because he had plenty of money. And if you want to spend money, you know, you're going to find that there's plenty of people that will help you do that. We know he ultimately went there because he wanted freedom. I mean, that's what we see in the request. He went there because he wanted to have fun. He was going to just live his life his own way. But above all, he went there because he wanted life. That's what he thought life was about. You know, he had it and, and he enjoyed it for a long time, as long as you can, because, you know, the Bible says there's pleasure and sin for a season. And the far country is very enjoyable for a little while. You know, he was living it up. He was wasting his life and he was wasting all his dad's money. But there are always two questions hanging over that far country, which we might forget, but they always will come back. And it's number one, what will you have to show for it? in the end? And two, how long is it going to last? You know, it can last an awfully long time and it can take many forms and it can be very enjoyable for sure. But in this situation, there ended up being a famine. And so this rebellious son, he hadn't planned for, you know, the economic depression essentially that was coming his way. And so when the famine hit, the money was running out. And I don't know if you realize how uh, Jewish people feel about pigs, but Orthodox Jews won't even mention the word pig. It's an unclean animal uh, in the Hebrew law. Yet here's this Jewish young man, and he's sitting with the pigs. And this tells us, you know, that all of his self-respect was gone. When a person gets to the end of the road, end of their self, you know, they might actually be at the beginning. And that's really a truth that we need to think about. You know, isn't it strange in human nature that we've got to sometimes go to the bottom before we look up? And that is sometimes the way it is for people that are just strong-willed and in rebellion. When all other things have failed, you know, then it, it seems that people are prepared to, to try God. You know, and it's sad that sometimes we go to him last, but the Lord will allow us to come to the end of ourself and end up in bad situations in order to draw us to himself. You know, and on the other hand, if he's the last resort, he's a pretty good resort. <laughs> the Bible says that this prodigal, this young man, he came to his senses. So essentially he realized that he'd been a fool. And you know what, you can't, that you can't even come to God until you actually come to yourself. 
And so like coming to your senses means, you know, he came to himself. He came into his right mind. And this is the reason that many people can't get through to God because they really can't, they've never really been to themselves. So he came to his senses. He knew he was a fool, but he realized two more things, the blessedness of those who stayed at home and the unworthiness in himself to ever go home. And those were real truths. He was a fool. He had done wrong. And he was prepared to say, I've sinned in the sight of God because he had. He was breaking the law of God about pigs for a start, but he had sinned in other ways too. And so he realized that good thoughts never saved anyone. You know, this man's realization of his error and his sin wouldn't have done anything for him unless he turned his thoughts into actions. So he says, I'm going to go back. So his thoughts and his motives were mixed. On one hand, he wanted to go back, which was good. But on the other hand, he thought he could still bargain with his father. He thought, you know, now, now I can't be a son anymore. I'm not worthy of that. But surely he might want a hand on the farm, you know, an extra laborer. Surely he would give me a wage, just a, a little bit of bread. Whatever his motives were, he got up and he went. And so I just want to say that it really doesn't matter how mixed your motives might be if you're wandering. If you get up and go back to God, he will have you. And I know this from personal experience. I was this prodigal. And so he has a way of straightening out our motives. He doesn't mind why a person comes as long as they come. And I just think that's such a beautiful, beautiful thing to just remember about our Lord. He's so gracious and full of compassion and mercy. But this is what happened. As soon as the father saw the son, he ran. He ran. And maybe we would have, you know, coached that, that young boy to clean himself up first. But the father ran and he fell on his neck, which would have been dirty and grimy. He had been in the pig pen and he kissed that neck. And that is God's love. The boy didn't even get out his bargain. He said, Father, I've sinned against you and, and God. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And that was as far as he got. And the father didn't say, if you promise to be better, you know, you can have a second chance. He said, bring, bring the robe. Bring the ring. Bring the shoes. If you've never been in a country where poor people don't wear shoes and where slaves don't wear shoes, you won't understand that part. It's a sign of sonship. So there's a question really we should wonder is why did the father do all of this? You know, the son hadn't promised to be better. The son hadn't proved himself. He hadn't been on a probationary period. But I'll tell you why. Because the son had done the one necessary thing to receive all of that. He left the far country. And that's it. That's huge. He left it. And he turned to his father. This is the one thing that God asks us to do when we come to him. And that is to just leave behind that self-willed, self-indulgent, self-centered life that we thought was life. He says, you've got to leave that behind and just come home. You can't come home and stay in the far country too. If you leave, then sonship is yours. No wonder they begin to dance. No wonder they were having a party. Luke 15, 25 to 28 says, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants 
and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, comes home, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Two things here that the older brother couldn't stand was grace, giving everything to a person who didn't deserve it and gratitude. Almost every sin in the book is seen here in the older brother, pride. He says, what's going on? Can you hear the tone of the voice that he had in this? I wasn't told. Pride is there. Anger is there too. The Bible even says that it's there. He was angry and so he wouldn't go in. Resentment is there. You never gave me a party, dad. Malice is there. He wasted your money on prostitutes. So there are questions that I want to ask. Did the younger brother stay at home? Did the older and younger brother make up and become friends? We don't really know. Because in the situation when Jesus was speaking, he was inviting those religious, respectable people. Remember who, when we read in the first two verses, who he was talking to, and it was two groups. You know, it was the tax collectors and the notorious sinners. And then this, then also the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law. That's who was listening to the story. And so he was inviting those religious, respectable people to come and join the party. Come in and write your own ending to the story. Do you know what really happened? Those people who murmured at Jesus being friends with sinners, paralleling to the older brother of the story, basically wrote this ending. The older brother glared at his father and said, I'll kill you for this. And that's what they did. The father in the story is Jesus. The father was in him. But the father in the parable was Jesus. The older brother was the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious people who got Jesus onto a cross and killed him because he was inviting sinners to be his followers. And so we have to always ask ourselves, what ending will we write to the story? Are we the younger brother? Do we feel like we've been away a long time from God? Then we would write the ending that says, you know, I don't understand fully what it's going to mean. I just know that if I come back to God now, then that's where I'm supposed to be. And, and this is where it's going to begin. And so we can write that ending in our own heart. But to any of us that are tempted to be an older brother, would you write this ending? Lord, I'm thrilled for all of my brothers and sisters that you brought back home. I belong to them. This is actually speaking of the Jewish people and our heart that we should have towards them. This is our family, our inheritance. They're the older brother, but we belong to them. And we've received grace together. Lord, I want to be part of their celebration. Count me in. Kill another fatted calf for me because I'm coming to the feast. When they come home, when their eyes are open to seeing Yeshua as their Messiah, we should rejoice at that. And we should be praying for that to happen. Jesus invites us to do this, in fact. And the parables that we're reading are intended to search us and to apply to us. In Luke 18, there's a story of a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I want eternal life. And Jesus said, you can have it. Just drop everything and follow me. The gospel of the kingdom was there 
did this rich man say, you know, that's just what I've been waiting for? No. He turned around and he went away sorrowful. Many people are eager to snatch, you know, a business opportunity, but are far from being those who are eager to snatch the gospel. Why is that? I would say because rich people, lovers of money, tend to ignore the gospel and to bend the law of God. You know, one of the most outlandish views about Jesus that's popular today is that Jesus bends the law of God, that he came to make love the guiding principle, and that he was prepared to relax the standards. But Jesus made it quite clear when he said not one jot or one tittle would be removed from the law until heaven or earth pass away. A jot is a little dash that changes a Hebrew letter into another letter, and a tittle is the smallest letter in Hebrew. It's saying, it's you, lovers of money, who bend the law and who bend principles. It's one of the effects of being affluent, actually. And to be specific, you know, that they actually asked him, well, Jesus, you know, tell us what you mean. Give us an example. And so he gives an example with their attitude toward marriage. It's one of the marks of an affluent society that the marriage laws of God get bent and the standards of God are relaxed. And it's this, when you've got a lot of money and you love it, then you can buy what you want and discard what you don't want. It gives you the power. Marriage becomes simply a business deal, you know, a contract. And if it doesn't work out, you just write it off as a loss. You buy your way out or you simply just try again. And if you don't get out of the contract, what you expect, then you just write it off and make another contract. But in Jesus's day, this was the picture, just like it is in our own day. And even the rabbis back then, they were saying, they were asking Jesus if, if it was okay that people could get divorced. If there's incompatibility, you know, then should two people divorce and, and find a more compatible partner? It, and it was into that question, into that situation that Jesus came and he said, not one jot or tittle of God's standard can be altered. And we see on the screen, Luke 16, verse 17 and 18, 18, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. You know, and so often we, we hear that, you know, grace, 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 and love, 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 and that, you know, you can just basically keep doing what you're doing and just add Jesus to it. And it's all fine because Jesus came and, you know, he's, he's just forgiving everyone and, and it's all good. And that's really a lot of the way the that's the way the gospel is understood in a large majority of Christian circles that grace covers it all and grace does cover it all, but it's not covering willful sin when we continue in willful sin we are called to be ye holy as i am holy and this word is meant to renew our mind and we're in a process of sanctification by the holy spirit and we need to allow and cooperate with the holy spirit and i'm saying all this to say that jesus did not abolish the law he said he did not and he actually made the standards even greater because in Moses's law, they were allowed to give a certificate of divorce. And he says, I say, you know, that there is that that's not the way that it's supposed to be. He did that because of the hardness of your hearts. But I'm saying that if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. You know, and he says even about hating someone, if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder. So he actually made the law stricter. But it's by his spirit that we are actually now without excuse because he's given us his Holy Spirit to enable us to give us that heart that's no longer hard to enable us to keep his law. He's given us all that we need, the scriptures say, as it pertains to life and godliness. And it took G Jesus three years, we see, to turn fishermen into fishers of men. Three full-time years of training. There was no Bible college. 
Most of it was given as they lived among others. There were some, you know, formal sermons, but most of it sprang out of life situations. If you're walking and talking with Jesus as you go through life, three years of living with him can train you to be a fisher of men. There'll be sermons that you hear, formal discourses, you know, on certain truths. But if that's the only training that you get from the Lord, it's not enough. You'll become a listener, a passive sermon taster only. We need to let life situations on weekdays become a channel for Jesus telling us something about ourselves and about other people. In this chapter 17 of Luke's gospel, remember Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and time is very short. He knows that he won't have much longer to teach the disciples. And so he's giving them lessons in how to follow him. And there are three lessons that we learn from Jesus in this passage in verse uh, verses 1 to 10. One lesson on sin, one on faith, and one on thanks. Three simple lessons that we need to learn if we're going to be followers of Jesus and able to help other people. First, the little lesson on sin. There's one thing that God regards worse than sinning yourself, and that's to make someone else sin. Better that a millstone be hung around your neck. Better to be dead is what that means. Jesus said it's inevitable that it'll happen in our world. Why? Because we copy each other. No man lives to himself, and all of us, better or worse, influence other people. We can't help it. Others will copy us. Our behavior affects other people. How many other people have sinned because of me? Ask yourself that question. It's really a sobering thought. You know, that's why our testimony is so important, that we, you know, walk worthy of our calling. And when we fall, you know, the Lord is gracious to forgive us and we get up and we brush ourselves off. But we realize that we need to strive to walk worthy of the calling. You know, we pick things up from the media, from friends, from groups of friends, and then we influence each other. And we either lift each other up or we drag each other down. We're like sheep. And have you ever watched sheep? If one finds a hole in a fence, all the others follow. All like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray, says the Bible. So how do we lead others astray? By example. They see us doing something and they say, well, it must be all right, so I can do it. Especially if you're a leader and you're doing something that's really contrary to God's word, but they see you doing it. And so they think, well, it must be fine. Maybe I don't understand what God's word means. Maybe it really doesn't mean what it says because this person who loves the Lord and is teaching the word of God, they're doing it, you know, and then also in teaching, you know, we might alter the standards of God and say, you know, we're modern now and God's, you know, original standards are old fashioned. So we don't need to observe them anymore. And that's very popular these days. Jesus had some very severe words for those who relaxed one bit of God's law. Funnily enough, we can also cause someone to sin by tightening God's standards and by making stricter standards than God made. That's the opposite way of doing it. That's what the Pharisees did. And provocation. You know, I might say, you know, I can see someone's issue with sin and maybe it's a bad temper. But what I may not realize is that I provoked them to that bad temper and that I stimulated it. And that is is was really my attitude or action, which caused them to lose their temper. So we should not be a provoker of people. So those are ways that we can lead others astray that we see in these scriptures. How do we reduce sin? The Bible says, so watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. So how do we remove it? The answer in scripture is by rebuking it and forgiving it. That's how we reduce or remove sin. Rebuke it and then forgive it when someone's asking for forgiveness. So let's take the first part, rebuking it. One of the most awful dangers is this. When we see sin, we talk about it to everyone, but the one responsible for it. You know, and the Bible makes it very clear that if you see sin, there's only one person that you should talk to, and that's the person who is in sin. You shouldn't go to anybody else. 
You shouldn't gossip about it. You shouldn't criticize them behind their back. You should go to them and in love, rebuke it. Rebuke what, the, you know, point out the sin lovingly. Secondly, you know, when they repent, we are instructed to forgive it. Seven times 70. And it's difficult to forgive someone because it involves forgetting, you know, putting it out of your relationship. And one of the reasons for doing this is, of course, that, you know, that's how we hope that the Lord will deal with us. The measure that you use will be the measure that gets used on you. And the Lord has said, if we don't forgive, we will not be forgiven. That should be the greatest motivation there's ever been for forgiving anyone who has sinned against us and just leaving it in the Lord's hands. And if it's, you know, if justice has not been served and you feel like you struggle to forgive someone, the Lord has the best justice, I can assure you. He has promised vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so how many times the Bible tells us, are we to forgive seven times 70? That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. So when we say the Lord's prayer, have you noticed that there's only one thing in that prayer that we say about ourselves? And it's, I have forgiven those who have trespassed against me. It's the only thing that you can claim when you ask for God's mercy. And it's that you have been merciful. That's another sobering thought. In as much as you have been merciful to others, then God is able to give you mercy. That's beautiful and powerful. The second lesson about faith where the apostles asked this question, you know, I see the reason why the disciples said to Jesus immediately after lesson number one, they said, Lord, increase our faith. So let's just read it. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep would say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But he will not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk. And afterward, you will eat and drink. The third lesson is about thanks. This follows our lesson in faith. The greatest danger that we can have is that having thrown the responsibility back on us and we haven't accepted it and exercised ourselves that we then expect thanks for doing what God has called us to do. We expect some sort of gratitude and adoration. We expect something for it. And there are two things that we need to learn about thanks. On the negative side, the things we do for God, we really should not expect. We should not have an expectation that we are owed a thank you. And on the positive side, we should learn to give thanks for the Lord. So does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So Jesus tells us something that we need to work out with practical implications, which are essentially this. Never expect to be thanked for what you do for the Lord, because if you receive thanks for what you're doing for him, it assumes that you've been doing him a favor and not a duty. You're not thanked for doing your duty. You're thanked for doing favors. We're to encourage one another, but that's different from thanking one another. The Lord speaks of sending a servant out to look after sheep or to plow. Plowing is evangelism. Breaking up fresh ground, looking after the sheep is pastoral work. And all Christian service falls under plowing or shepherding. Does your boss say to you regularly, I'm so grateful for you doing me this favor? Sit down and let me get food and drink for you. No, a master who has a servant says, now you've finished plowing, get my meal ready. Only after he has finished all the duties, then he can sit down and enjoy the meal himself. It's a hard saying and a difficult one to accept and apply. Jesus, you know, he has a feast prepared for us in heaven, but that's at the end of the day. It's at the end of the age. 
And our duty at the moment is to serve him. We can sit down at the feast when we finish our duty, but Jesus is teaching that even when you think you've done your very best, don't think that you've done God a favor. Don't think that he owes you something. He still spent more on you than he'll ever get back from you. And have you noticed that throughout the Bible, God, the father, nor Jesus, the son of God ever thanked anyone for what they asked to be done. It's just not in the scripture. The point is that if we expect thanks, we'll begin to think that we're doing the church a favor. You know, I've been doing Bible study a favor. If you serve in the nursery of church, you know, I'm doing the nursery a favor. Well, you're not. You haven't. You're just doing your duty to the Lord. And great is your reward in heaven. And the positive side is that we're to be full of gratitude. But thanks should go where it belongs. We praise the Lord, you know, and praise the Lord for those who faithfully serve him that are in our church. You know, praise the Lord who faithfully come to Bible study and do the things that, that need to be done to keep this thing going. Praise the Lord because it's all the Lord who told them to do it in the first place. Praise the Lord that he provides workers in his vineyard. This is all the Lord's doing. And so the point is, again, that we just come to the conclusion that the Lord is so worthy of all of our praise. And that, again, the focus is on him and his goodness and his calling, you know, and what he has in store for those who are his. And so I know I sort of hopped around a little bit and um, don't want to leave uh, anyone with questions. So I wanted to just open it up and see if anyone has comments or thoughts just based on what has been shared. Thank you for the teaching. Thank you for the truth. Because oftentimes, you know, we live in a culture where everyone wants to receive a thank you, thank you, thank you. And, you know, the Lord is telling us in everything, give thanks, but we give that thanks to him. And really coming into the reality that the things that I get to do to Jesus, get to do for Jesus is an honor. And if no one ever says thank you, I'm not worthy of doing it for Jesus in the first place. So it is well and it is good. Amen. And, you know, uh, again, with the prodigal son, I love it in two points. One is that the father is so observant. And it reminds me of Jesus and the father whose eyes are always on us, attentively watching us, you know, and he didn't just see the prodigal son returning and he ran to him. He was also observant of that, that elder son who he noticed didn't come in. So he went to seek him out also. So I love that because he is always seeking out that which is lost, that which has gone astray. And for me, I was a prodigal. I'm telling you, I was the prodigal. I was the elder brother. I've been all in one place or position or another. And I'm so grateful that wherever it was, when I was the prodigal, God received me back. And when I was the elder brother, because I thought someone had did something to me and God should get mad at them too. And he didn't, amen, that he dealt with me about me and brought me to the place where you shared that we should be thankful and praising God for all of our brothers and sisters that return home, amen. Starting with the Jews first, but also other Christians, because sometimes we can think that, you know, well, how could sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so did that to me and we want God to get mad at them. And that's why we go out and tell it to other people because we want them to get mad too, but that is not what God desires. It's not what he's looking for. And my last thought was uh, for me, the things that you said were de definitely true and honest. For some, it may have been a hard teaching, but it's what we need and it's the truth of God's words. I was just going to say, I was thinking the father was an exceptional father. And it's like, surely the younger son, he had some idea, some knowledge of what kind of a man his father was. 
and for him to, for the father to be so willing to give him his inheritance and for the son to, you know, arise and say, I'm going to go back home. Cause a lot of times, you know, a father would be like, well, some I know would be like, well, you're just going to have to wait for your inheritance. And then as far as coming back, he had to have known that his father just wouldn't ignore him. or would not accept him back. Because again, like I say, he had to have known, I believe, what kind of a man his father was. Mm -hmm. Even though he was willing to come back and be a slave. I wanted to, to share a couple thoughts. I love love the teaching, Krista, and the, the spicy sayings of Jesus. Um, we can't gloss over, we can't erase. It would be, we'd be fools to not look at and let them let his word, what I always say is like, we don't break God's word. God's word breaks us. And, and those sayings are in there, I believe, um, to bring us into the alignment we have to have at the heart level uh, to follow and obey. And we all have to be broken. Um, you know, like that horse that has to be broken in order to be of useful mm -hmm. service. Every human being goes, we go through our, our breakings, uh, breaking of self-will, and breaking of our own desires and our own lusts. We have to be disciplined and bridled and brought into subjection. You're going to serve something. You know, you're going to serve or someone is even more accurate. You will serve Satan or you will serve God. And the breaking is a necessary part of coming into submission to making Jesus Lord um, in every area, whether that's finances or sexuality or, uh, you know, wealth or whatever it is, all of it dominates the human heart. And he came to set us free from sin that dominates our heart so that we could serve him as we were in, created to, uh, to as his image bearers. But I, I just want to touch on one thing as you were sharing about the prodigal son and you touched on Israel. And <clears throat> I love, you know, in Matthew 15, Jesus says straight up, I came for the lost house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so when we, when we remember that he's telling these parables in Luke 15 to a Jewish audience, um, I think it's really amazing that here are these scribes and these Pharisees that are grumbling about y Yeshua hanging out with sinners. That's why he, what kind of prompts Jesus to begin talking about these. And he tells three parables in quick succession, the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the prodigal son. And I think they're, they're grouped together because they're, uh, demonstrative of of our father's heart but but I, I don't want us to miss the application immediately to Israel in all of these things this is how the father feels about you know Israel's a law is the lost sheep Israel's the lost coin Israel's the prodigal son from God's perspective now we certainly it can be applied to all of us they're universal I love what Sylvia said we've all been the characters in the story they can be applied in so many different ways. So I'm not saying it's the only application. I'm saying it's the initial application, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. of here's here's Israel that was that has this inheritance in God. They've been given all of the law, the covenants, the patriarchs. Yeshua himself is coming down to the world through Israel by the will of the Heavenly Father. And here they, they've gone and they've squandered. And I think... Sometimes this is helpful for Gentiles for us to realize, actually, now we're at the at the at the part of the story where the Jewish people are coming back to receive Messiah. They're coming home. And they're, you know, in one sense, you can look at the Gentile church and the elder brother role. Well, what what are we what's our posture of heart towards the Jewish people's salvation? And you touched on it tonight, but I just wanted to underline it. I think it's so critical that we 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 uh, lean into and exhibit the father's joy over the restoration. Like when you think about how long he has, he's worked with Israel and to see, you know, after 2000 years of the diaspora, to see the Jews back in the land, to see, you know, the Jesus movement and Jews beginning to receive Messiah. It really in the last 50 years, there's been an exponential growth um, we have a friend in Israel who's a third generation Israeli believer. And he was saying his grandparents, when they were there in 47, when Israel became a nation, 
only 25 known believers in the land of Israel. Now there's approximately 25,000. So you're talking in 70 years, you go from 25 to 25,000. You know, God is doing something remarkable. And I think in this parable for me is a, a doorway to open and walk in and, and remember to look at the Jewish people, to look at sinners, to look at ourselves and have nothing but worshipful gratitude that we have a father who tiptoes on a fence, peering out, waiting for the heart of one that he loves to turn back to him and respond in love. He wants to respond in love and celebration because we have a God who loves to throw a great party. Um, and so anyway, I just wanted to underline that, but, um, you know, Jesus communicating, it's like when you think about he this audience of, of Jews that are hard hearted towards the sinners that he's, he's entertaining and sitting down with sinners and they're grumbling about it. And you can just feel him wanting them to encounter the father's heart for the sinners in Israel. And so he's teaching them and an opening part of his heart up for them to look into and begin to walk out have compassion and mercy towards others and love and, and be praying for them to turn their heart. And what, what a time to be praying those prayers, considering all that's happening in Israel right now, that just through, through the chaos, through all of the, the trauma and turmoil, that their hearts would return to the God of Israel. So bless you guys. Amen. And just with what you're saying, I wanted to mention a verse that I posted today actually was Hosea 5 verse 15. And it says, then I will return to my place until they, speaking of Israel, admit their guilt and turn to me for as soon as trouble comes, they will earnestly search for me. And I just think, you know, to what you're saying, it gives us a great understanding of the prayer point we need to have for Israel, even right now, you know, because God does have a plan for Israel and what's taking place as we speak, you know, he just needs them to turn to him. And so our prayer can be that through this time that they're experiencing pain, confusion, trauma, and so much sorrow over all of the tragedies that have been happening to the land and the people, you know, that those people that have been relying on their religion without Yeshua, um, or they've been relying on their government or their own wealth or strength or wisdom that they, you know, our prayer should be that they, the, the Holy Spirit would give them the unction to earnestly seek the Lord. Because during this time, he's prophetically written this word that when trouble comes to them, they will earnestly search for me. And he's saying, I will return to my place until they admit their guilt and turn to me. And, you know, and I, as I read that and I realized that it is for Israel, there is again, like you said, in that prodigal it was for Israel first because everything is to the Jews first but we also see that application to all of us in the nations as well as the church that there's no exemptions to this we all have to admit our guilt and earnestly seek the Lord um, but especially you know it's something to speak of in terms of like a prayer point for Israel and um, and the Jewish people at this particular time because God is shaking Everything that can be shaken, he's allowing this shaking to come so that the people will earnestly search for him and turn to him. I would like to ponder on what you said earlier. Can't come to God if you haven't come to yourself. And um, and I think uh, Pastor Jed shared in the beginning of his uh, sharing too, the same thing, unless we are convicted. And I felt... Um, you know, that's where the real transformation and realization, or rather not even transformation, it's realization that I have blundered. And when we come to that stage, then only I can come to God. But uh, when I look at the prodigal son, when you were explaining what, what I realized, that he came to realization he has blundered. But was he convicted? That's how he was trying, oh, I'll go back to my father, but I'll be a servant. So I apply that to myself. I realized that that turning point when I was so successful, so great, so wonderful at the age of 23, 
everything, everything I wanted, thinking that that was the right thing. But everything fall apart. God shook everything, everything. And, and that moment I was convicted. And then I realized I really need God. And that's where I turned to God. And that was a turning point. But I also realized that's not the end. That's just the beginning. As Christians, we have to, for every phase, I've, I, I realized that there is a time where God convicts us again. You know, like the prodigal son, the father just gave everything. So sometimes he gives us what we want, not because that's the right thing, because you, I'm persistent. I, I, I feel this is the way it should be done. And I look at ministry before, you know, when I, I was given, after getting convicted, everything, and then I realized, okay, this is the, uh, I've got my position. And, and I had worldly ideas because all the years you have trained this way, this is fruitfulness, this is how you multiply, this is how, in all this circular world. So I brought that into the kingdom of God and I realized, no, God shook it again. And I was wondering what happened. But thank God I was seeking God. And God spoke to me and told me, no, your ways are completely different from my ways. And then I started seeking the Lord. And then I thought, okay, the best way is to see other leaders, other leaders, how they do. So what we had, we had a prayer center, Theodore, myself, and we had a few people with us. So we, at the beginning of the year, we planned and said, okay, we should do this, we should do this, we should do this, we should, and then, and of course, we were praying every week. But as we were praying, nothing that we planned happened. But many other things happened. And then we realized somewhere the third quarter, then we realized all that we planned were following other leaders. We were not collaborating with the Holy Spirit. Even though we were praying in tongue, even though we knew that the Holy Spirit is our suitable helper, because we felt that this is how our how our other leaders are doing. This is how the church should do. So therefore, this is the kingdom way. And 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 when I like what you said, and I felt God is reminding me that I need to constantly collaborate. You had me at hello tonight with uh, Luke fourteen twenty five through twenty eight. Um, that really nothing can come before him no one no thing and he doesn't say you 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 can't be my um say servant or um have a fivefold office he's like you can't even be my disciple if you have anyone ahead of me and so i've been pretty much undone since then and thanks for tonight Praise the Lord. And that's hard. It's a hard word for us to hear, but we've just got to read his words and, and let his word wreck us, you know, let his word do the work it's meant to do in us and not, you know, brush things under the rug, but begin to have a conversation with the Holy Spirit and just asking the Lord when we read these things that do seem hard, Lord, help me understand this. Help me live this. Help me to do your will. And he will. Before we go, I just want to add one more thing. And that is, I believe that tonight and the teachings were so very important. Why? Because as Christianity in general, we have now been given a Christianity of ease. But we are in a season where things are becoming more and more challenging and difficult. And so we must understand that it is not that God is good because my life is absence of suffering. God is good 
in the midst and because of the suffering he sees us through. He is preparing and posturing us for the things that are coming. And saints, we must allow him to prepare us and make us ready. Amen. And to know that what he said in his word, that's what he means. We cannot continue to justify and say, well, he doesn't really mean that. Maybe just, no, the word says what he says. And we don't have to apologize or make excuses for it. Jesus told these things and he said them so that we could be ready for the days that are ahead. Amen. And how he relates to Israel and the Jews is how he relates to all nations and all people. Amen. We are not uh, superior or, or better God sees the body of Christ. He loves us, but there is much work to be done. And we have been called to be witnesses and witnesses bear true testimony for him. And it is going to cost us everything. And we are to stand firm. Amen. We are to stand firm. Better days, easier days are not coming except for we be found in him and he do all that needs to be done through us. Amen. Persecution is coming, not just in Malaysia, but everywhere, not just in China, not just in Israel, but in the United States. Because as we get closer to his return, the enemy does not, the enemy does not want us to be still standing and for him to find faith on the earth and to find us working. He said, occupy until he returns. And that's exactly what he means. Amen. And you know, even that word occupy, that means we have to hold the ground. Yes. We have to hold the ground. We have to stand on the truth of God's word and not even though wickedness is advancing in the earth, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the kingdom. We've got to remember that as we move forward, you know, because like you're saying, it's so important that we are rooted in this word, standing on it, believing it and allowing it to transform us. But again, walking forward in faith, exercising these promises, because we are coming into a time where I believe persecution is going to come. But I also believe that that word that says that those who know their God in the last days, it's time in that verse, it's speaking of last days. And it says that wickedness will increase in the earth, but those who know their God, the righteous will be refined. It says at the same time, and those who know their God are going to do great exploits for him. Praise the Lord. It just means we're going to be able to stand on the truth and we're going to watch the Holy Spirit do a work. It has nothing to do with any of us having some special ability. None of us have that. We don't have some special healing virtues. We have no power in and of ourselves, but it is the Lord. If we were, if we will submit ourselves to him with clean hands and pure hearts and just truly turn our heart to him with an attitude and a heart that's repentant, we are clean before him. And now he can do a work through us as we begin to operate in faith, trusting and knowing who our God is. And that's the awesome thing about this Bible study as we continue to read the word of God year by year over and over is just allowing this word to remind us of these things, to remind us of the promises, to remind us of who he is, lest we should forget, you know, and, and people have a tendency to forget. So we need to continue moving forward. I just believe God's going to reveal so much to us as we continue eating the word. Pastor Jed, would you close this in prayer? Father, um, wow. Your word is eternal. Your word never returns void. And all of our hearts, whether we started walking with you yesterday or we've been walking with you for decades, um, the human heart, all our hearts can drift. And so we just want to come into alignment with your word. And Lord, I just want to ask that you'd help us Help me, help us where, where we're not in full alignment with your word, that you would line us up by your spirit, that um, your word would be the plumb line and it would, it would just go in deep into our, our hearts in this season. 
And uh, Lord, we need your presence in our lives in this time because persecution is coming. And, and Lord, you, you are our end time strategy. Your presence, Psalm 91, to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. Lord, and so as we bring this uh, this time of fellowship in your word tonight to a close, we do so just remembering uh, all that's happening in Israel, where we don't even really fully know what to pray all the time. But we know that you never slumber nor sleep. And so we pray you would be there as we've prayed in, in Malaysia. We pray for Israel. We pray for these places on the earth where our brothers and sisters are um, being pressed in ways. And we know that that is coming for all in the body of Christ. And so Lord, we pray that you would be um, preparing our hearts by your word and with your presence and teaching us, training us and, and disciplining us into um, agreement, alignment, surrender, and uh, abandonment to your will that we could be that salt and light as Krista was saying earlier that uh, we would maintain that purposeful flavoring uh, and that preservative agent that you want for us to be in the earth so we thank you for tonight for your blessings over everybody the families represented that you'd be with us in this week uh, we pray all this in the name of Yeshua amen <laughs>